The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Today, um, as we left off last week, uh, my guest returning is Dr. Ron Orenstein, uh, author of Ivory, Horn, and Blood, Behind the Elephant and Rhinoceros Poaching Crisis. Last week, we got into a very lively and intense discussion of what CITES is, what it can do, what it can do, and what it's expected to do. And last week, we got up to a point of understanding what the appendixes are and how they protect and categorize species. And we also learned that the megafauna that we are very much focused on today are not the only things that CITES works to protect and conserve. And that the difference between what CITES is, a treaty, versus a consensus, votes versus a consensus, and how it functions and how it was begun. So once again, I welcome back my guest, Dr. Ron Orenstein. Welcome. Thank you, Ellen. It's great to have you back, and uh, we're going to get into and f- a further conversation of where we left off last week and segue into CITES and bans and how it worked and perhaps get into some of what happened at COP17. So um, let's start there. Um, at, at CITES COP17, it was stated that they stopped the mechanism for trading ivory. Okay. So can you help us understand what this means? Well, it's not quite what it is. Um, What happened was, this again, as I I was trying to explain last week, was that CITES has basically two kinds of things that it does when you have a a big meeting like the one we just had in South Africa, COP17. One is you decide what species are listed on Appendix 1 or Appendix 2, or you move them from one to the other, or or whatever you do. The other committee, Committee 2, deals with the way in which CITES operates. Once you've listed a species, then what? What does that require countries to do? What actions can be taken? And they can be a huge range of things that are covered in... uh, what are called resolutions or sometimes decisions. A resolution is something that sort of stays on the books, whereas a decision is something that is supposed to be accomplished fairly quickly. Like you have a conference, you do a population census of an animal, you do something 
that, that you can finish in time to report back at the next meeting that the country has taken some action and here's what they have to do. Now, what you asked me about really comes under almost both heads. Uh, back in uh, 2008, uh, a decision was made, which I think was an extremely unfortunate decision, to allow uh, trade in ivory from countries in Southern Africa that had their elephant populations transferred to Appendix 2 back in 1997, but which had only been allowed to send some ivory to Japan at that time, to sell a very large amount of ivory to Japan and China. That was the big problem, and uh, I, I believe those people who, who say that that may have been what triggered the Russia poaching we see today, or certainly have been part of it. But there was a quid pro quo. Um, there was a decision made, a decision was sort of informal, that there would be a moratorium on further proposals to trade in ivory for until this year, a period of about 10 years, and, or nine years actually. And the other thing that was, was promised was there were a number of countries like Zimbabwe, like South Africa, that said, look, um, we want to have an ivory trade. We realize we can't have it now. We've done this one-off sale, and we realize we're not going to ask for any ivory for the next nine years. But the day will come when we're, we're going to want to trade in ivory, and we want to know what the rules of the game are. We want to know what kinds of information the CITES parties are going to take under their belt when they're considering whether to vote for an ivory trade proposal or not in order to make the decision. They want to know where the goalposts were effectively. And so the parties made a decision just to initiate discussions to create what was called a decision-making mechanism for a trade in ivory, so what colloquially a DMM. Now, what the DMM was supposed to be was a, a set of guidelines or rules that the parties would rely on when they were asked again, can we trade in ivory? What kind of information were they supposed to have? What was supposed to be taken into consideration? What wasn't supposed to be taken into consideration? And I'd like to uh, just interject one thing here. You were a part of the committee uh, who drafted no, proposals. No, 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 I was not. Um, you might, first of all, uh, these proposals of this sort Tended are brought forward by countries. Then they may the countries at the meeting may break up into a working group, and the working group um, will um, discuss uh, what the wording of these documents should be. These decisions, these resolutions. Then they're brought back to the committee to to uh, vote on, um, possibly amend further, and then pass. And this again, so, I'm sorry to interject to uh, to bring us back to what we covered last week. Why that? Uh, episode is critical to listen to is once again CITES is a treaty and the role of members and observers they have an active role in these working groups in these committees. Members are countries each country has one vote the United States has one vote Djibouti has one vote Um, the EU has 26 well, the, the, that's a little more complicated. We can get into that if you like. The, the, the EU is now actually, as of this meeting, the EU has, uh, is now actually a party of its own. So, but it can't vote in addition to its members. It can vote instead of its members if they all agree. That, that's kind of complicated. We should maybe leave that alone for the moment. Okay. But, uh, but the point is that the working, I was actually not a member of the working group that, that uh, 
that worked out some of this language as it happened. I was involved in other issues and also uh, those of us who were observers, we people who were members of conservation organizations and that felt that we wanted to leave a lot of this for the African countries themselves to work out because we don't want to be accused of unduly influencing okay. uh, that process because th- there is a big rivalry in this between the Southern African countries and the rest of the rest of Africa. And one of the common accusations that Southern Africans make is that the countries in the rest of Africa are only doing what groups like Greenpeace are telling them to do. So since that's A, not true, but B, we don't want to give that impression. Um, and we, B, it's kind uh, of insulting to African of nations. It's, it's extremely insulting. Uh, but the thing is that we, we want to stand back and say, okay, we, we've certainly put our, our views forward. There's no question about that. We've written them. We've put up documents. We've put up briefing papers. We've done all kinds of things. But it's now up to those countries to go into the room and work this out. So, no, I wasn't part of the... Uh, in fact, I, I, I would have uh, been quite vociferously against it had I been a part of it, but I, I thought it was a bad idea. But anyway, the point is the decision-making mechanism, the, the idea to set up and create a decision-making mechanism was taken in 2008. Now, of course, after that, we didn't know at that time that we were going to have a major upsurge of, of poaching and the involvement of organized criminal elements and the organization of rebel militias, and it, you know, the, the, the whole thing was going to spiral out of control. And you say and, this rather offhandedly, but this is really a very big issue in oh, what has issue. changed but since yes, the last yes, couple of COPs and the, exactly. ivory tra- uh, the ivory trade proposals that were allowed to go through. And we're going to get into that some more. Well, let, Please let continue. So the point is that the decision to develop this mechanism was taken in 2008. Now, a, a group of people went away and drafted a, what they thought was going to, what they said was going to be a decision-making mechanism, but they, it was written by some people who are extremely opposed to the Appendix 1 listing and very, very much pro-ivory trade. It was written by, I would say, fairly, shall we say, extreme elements on that side of the fence. And the... The mechanism that was brought back was simply not acceptable by the other parties because, in effect, what it did was to say, uh, first of all, that they wanted to set up a sort of a cartel equivalent to the international cartel controlling diamond trading and said that would prevent poaching. And, of course, we pointed out that the diamond coalition has done nothing of the kind. And, um, in effect, it would have removed the ability for the, uh, the CITES members to sort of stand guard over the way this mechanism would work out. It was kind of once you decided that these countries could could trade, you then had no further say in the matter, even if things got much worse. And so it was not acceptable and it wasn't accepted. That's a really, really important point. I would like to stress that again to our listeners, if you need to re-listen to what Ron just said, because it's critical. Yeah. Go ahead. The thing is that, so the whole thing dragged on and dragged on to the next now, at this meeting, uh, this was the end of the nine-year moratorium, and the, the uh, countries that wanted a decision-making mechanism, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Namibia, uh, came forward. They, they, in effect, were t- issued almost an ultimatum. They, they, they presented a, a stripped-down version of a decision-making mechanism that was even more extreme, I think, than the one that was proposed earlier. It basically said that as long as South Africa was doing certain things, they should be, or, or countries like South Africa, they could trade in ivory and there wasn't much that anyone could do about it. And uh, they basically uh, almost threatened the parties that, that, that they would ignore the treaty if, if this wasn't accepted. Well, of course, that was bluff, I believe. And uh, 
On the other side, you had uh, the African Elephant Coalition, which was a, a, a body consisting of the countries elsewhere in Africa, uh, but 14 countries, I believe, um, who put forward a proposal led by uh, Burkina Faso in Kenya to say, let's just get rid of the, this whole thing. This, this whole decision-making mechanism development is a bad idea because as long as you are keep talking about a mechanism to decide on ivory trade proposals, you are leaving a door open saying, we're going to bring back the ivory trade one day. And that is a signal, they believe, to poachers that just hang on to your ivory, folks, you'll be able to sell it. Because back before the original ivory ban in 1989, it was crucial for poachers of ivory to get their ivory onto the legal market. This is a, a critical point because people who went out to buy ivory in most cases weren't interested in buying stolen, smuggled, poached ivory. They wanted to buy properly harvested, if you could use that word at all, um, ivory. They wanted legal ivory. And you do... Well, you let, do bring the, I'm just going to interject here. You do bring up a very good um, explanation of harvesting ivory in your book, Ivory Horn and Blood, Behind the Elephant and Rhinoceros Poaching Crisis. I strongly recommend our listeners read this book because it does outline a whole lot of information and that if anyone is getting an idea that Ron is not and a lover and passionate about saving elephant and rhinoceros, then you're interpreting this incorrectly. Hmm. So um, I do want to say that Ron is a champion of these these two species in particular, along with many other species. So I just needed to get that in there as we discuss what CITES can and can't do, and and the. Um, in inner workings of how it actually functions. So I just needed to get that in there. Please continue. Thank right, you. Thank you. Uh, well, what I was going to say, thank you for saying that. Certainly, I appreciate it. Um, is that the uh, the mechanism that was proposed by Southern Africa was, was simply unacceptable, and by and large, in effect, uh, countries bought in to the other proposal, which was let's not send a signal to poachers saying. Legal ivory is going to be there, so you can launder illegal ivory onto the legal market. It's going to happen in the future. Keep going. It was the me- the message should go out that no, we're not even going to talk about a future ivory trade at this point. Just forget it. So the decision making mechanism decision was repealed. That means, in effect, that there will be no further requirement to discuss this. I mean, someone could bring it up again, but I mean, under the decision that was passed in two thousand and eight, that's done. So. That effectively killed off the discussion of what kind of mechanism we should have to trade in ivory. And to, to my mind, that was a major victory. Um, it was, even though it wasn't a change in a listing proposal, I think it may have had an even greater effect than a change in a listing proposal because it stopped something that was actually happening, the discussion of this mechanism, in the same way that there was a decision to urge countries to shut down their domestic ivory markets, which CITES, of course, can't do itself because it deals with international trade, but it was a sense, shall we say, of the parties that we don't want these domestic markets because they create lots of problems. And, of course, IUCN had passed a similar resolution at its own meeting earlier in September. So those were two extraordinarily important decisions with respect to sending the message out that we're going to do everything we can to stop ivory trade, that ivory trade is not a good idea, 
and that we want to uh, keep it out of the discussion and that we want to get the sale of ivory off the world stage, those decisions which were made outside of the listing process were very, very crucial and big successes, I think, for elephant conservation at this last CITES meeting. So that's an important point. So at this moment, we're going to step away for a short break and give our listeners an opportunity to absorb what they've just heard. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about just what this means in terms of the ivory bands. So stick with us. This is Our Wild World. My guest, Dr. Ron Orenstein, and we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Dr. Ron Orenstein, and we are talking about CITES and leading up to this current CITES, uh, COP17, and way forward and what took place and a better understanding of the inner workings of what CITES can can't do and what it can be expected to do. So right before the break, we were leading up into uh, elephants, Appendix 1, Appendix 2, and what countries, um, African nations can do, can't do through the mechanism of CITES. So let's get into bans. Do bans work? Well, I would say that they can work. Uh, The argument that a lot of people who oppose what CITES does 
uh, on the trade side is that bans uh, don't work because, in effect, it's a top-down mechanism forcing people not to do something, and they're just going to you're just going to create a monopoly for the criminal side. And they always use the example of prohibition in the United States. And if the pro the amendment banning alcohol was a failure because people just went out and bought all their uh, their booze from Al Capone, um, but that's only one kind of a reaction to a ban. A ban that is not accepted by people, that is seen as being forced on them, is probably going to fail. That's true. But a ban that people understand, accept, and buy into may succeed. And in fact, the ban itself may be part of an educational mechanism as to why this, whatever it is, is being banned in the first place. Give us an example. Well, for instance, there are bans on the use of DDT and other toxic chemicals. By and large... Now, you'll get people who will object about DDT. That's another issue. But most people understand that there is a reason why you ban a a, a poison, a toxic chemical. People understand that they don't want to have these things dumped into their environment. So the ban works. There are laws against murder. It doesn't mean nobody ever gets murdered. Uh, If if your argument were that... uh, the laws against murder are a failure because murders still happen. Let's abolish the laws against murder. Uh, I don't know what you'd end up having instead. And, and I think this is sort of the same sort of thing. If you have a trade ban under CITES, which again is barring commercial trade in, in something by putting up Appendix 1, that ban, in some cases, may not be observed. And you're going to have poaching and you're have additional problems. In other cases, depending on where the market is, who's buying it and why, it may work very well. And in fact, it can be part of an educational program. The ban in 1989 against the ivory trade globally kind of confirmed the message that had been going out for some months previously that the ivory trade was wiping out elephants in a, in, in a very ruthless and wholesale fashion. The ban was like saying, yes, this is the official confirmation that you shouldn't buy ivory. It's not and it was agreed upon. Not, the critical part is that it was, well, it was agreed, agreed upon. upon. It was agreed upon. I mean, and but not only that, is it came from an international treaty. That there was the, the countries of the world had said, yes, we don't want this to happen anymore. And people knew enough why that it was like, yes, okay, we now understand that that's been agreed to fine. Um, and by and large, it was a success. Now, in one of the reasons that uh, the ivory trade sprang up again in, in, uh, in this century is it was a different market. Uh, in 1989, the chief markets were Japan, um, where there is still some market, and uh, perhaps worse than, than we had thought, but it's still there, mostly for name seals. But the, one of the major markets was in the West. People bought ivory jewelry, ivory piano keys, etc. A lot and, of people tend to forget that the U.S. is one of the larger markets for well, exactly. ivory. So exactly. this, this is bringing us around once again to your book, but, and Behind the Elephant and rhinos, not Rhinoceros Poaching Crisis Today, Ivory, Horn, and Blood. So this is kind of what you're helping us understand is you're bringing this home to COP17 and what's happening today it, and it, the precursor of, yeah, I mean, the, of the this crisis. Me, that the market today is not in the United States or the West. That market collapsed after the 1989 ban. The market today is in Asia, primarily. If, if, if I'm correct in saying that a ban works when people buy into it, then part of the job that we have when a ban is passed is to educate the potential buyers as to why. So this is why the best 
mechanism, in my belief, for stopping the trade in ivory and rhino horn, or, or at least bringing it down to, to reasonable levels, is to educate the people who would be buying the stuff as to why they shouldn't. Now, that can be for good conservation reasons, or it can simply be style. It can be that they don't, people don't think it's cool anymore. One, one second. Doesn't the education of the African nations who want to trade in ivory, doesn't the education of what these species mean, not only to their ecosystems as keystone or flagship species, and to their economics of tourism, but also the aesthetics, what would we do well, without I, these species? Well, First of all, I, really, it, it, based on the discussions I've had working with African countries, things like that, they know that. Um, th- th- that's not a mystery to them. Uh, they're, they're very well aware that poaching is a major drain on their uh, resources, uh, not just economically, but uh, you, know, they're, they're, you, you end up with political destabilization, uh, corruption, uh, the operation of militias like the Lord's Resistance Army. I don't think you need to convince Africans why these are not good things. Um, what you do have a problem with is when you go to China and uh, you have things like a survey done by the International Fund for Animal Welfare a few years back, which uh, showed that 74% of the people who were buying ivory didn't even know you had to kill the elephant to get it. Um, that people are not aware of the consequences of, of purchasing ivory, they're not living with these militias invading them or, or, or their countries being destabilized. All they're doing is buying in a product and they're, they're believing what dealers tell them. So the place... Aren't they also, have, I'm sorry, but aren't they also living with the criminal cartels or are they aware well, well, of the well, criminal cartels' sure role are. in this? They are. But let me ask you, if you're, if you're a poor African living in a little village somewhere and a militia unit with AK-47s pulls into your village, how big of an argument are you going to give them? Right. I mean... You know, I mean, it's been shown that poaching is worse in the countries that have poorest governance, the countries that are falling apart, the Democratic Republic of Congo, et cetera, countries like that. You know, the people who live there are aware of the mess they're in, but they can't do anything about it. They don't have the power. Um, whereas in, in China, they, as, as to quote the, uh, the Wild AIDS slogan, when the buying stops, the killing can too. That's why the demand reduction campaigns are being carried out primarily in Asia. And as a matter of fact, at COP17, I, I went to presentations where um, in Africa you had school children doing a march to preserve rhinos, preserve elephants in South Africa. I mean, they're doing this. The thing is that the message of what cost this is to Africans is not getting to the end market. And as far as the criminal elements go, I mean, Remember, we're not just talking about some guy going up potting an elephant. We're talking about organized crime at a very sophisticated level, which stretches all the way from Africa where the animals are to Asia where the ivory is sold or the rhino horn is sold. Um, You cannot have the kind of trade that we have in illegal ivory today unless it is highly organized and highly financed. It is very expensive to have teams of poachers, not just poachers. Remember, your poachers have to know where the animals are. They have to get them. They need arms and ammunition, sometimes helicopters, uh, semi-automatics. Then you have to get the ivory out to a point where you can export it. You may have to deal with uh, customs officials, bribes or whatever. You may have to disguise your ivory. And you're sending out, remember, we're not sending out the odd tusk. We're talking about container shipments full of this stuff. 
uh, you're going out with, you know, make sometimes covered with a layer of dead fish or something just to pretend there's something else. The containers will have to go on a ship across the ocean, stopping at various ports, hoping that either nobody's going to inspect the containers or if you do, you can bribe them. Then they get to the end port. They have to be maybe Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, wherever, and then they have to be transferred from there by road or ship to China and, and got to the end markets. This costs a fortune. And the reason that organized crime gets involved in it is because the price is so high that it's worth it, that they can spend all that money and they will still turn a profit. That is why one of the key things that has to happen, in my opinion, with ivory and rhino horn is the price has to come way down. And in fact, that is happening. Both ivory and rhino horn this year prices have dropped substantially on the black market in China. So Um, so this leads me to a question I was going to ask. Are the campaigns to stop the demand being effective? We we talked about this a little bit um, in a a previous conversation, that a recent study shows that the most most ivory in the illegal markets or on the markets today is from recent poachings. That means within... Three to six years of which, the which death is, of the elephant, and they can figure that out through carbon dating. Yes. So, that, does not, that say that bans are not being effective? Well, I mean, the bans been in place since 1989. I'm, I'm sorry, not the bans, the campaigns to well, reduce the demand. All right, first, I mean, again, I don't think that's the measure you look at. I think you track price. I mean, yes, and there's going to be a lag. Remember, if the price starts to go down, it doesn't mean that the poachers are necessarily going to know that immediately. It may take a while. The point is that poaching escalated tremendously in the past five years. So the fact that most of the poaching, uh, most of the ivory is coming from recently killed elephants, that's no big surprise. But thing is that if you look at the prices, and people like as Dr. Esmond Martin, for example, or other people who are experts on this, have noticed that the price is going down. Now, why is it going down? There are a number of possible explanations because it's very difficult to always to figure out why things happen. Cause and effect is not always so clear. But certainly the demand reduction campaigns may be playing a part. I hope they are. Uh, We've seen other demand reduction campaigns for use of things like shark fin that are having an effect or seem to be having an effect on the market. Uh, I have heard also suggestions that there's an oversupply, that the poachers have, have, in effect, killed so many elephants it's piling up in China now I could also say that that may also be tied into the demand reduction campaigns because if you have fewer customers uh, people deciding not to buy then you can have an overstock uh, that that's just a consequence of having fewer buyers on this little point right here where does uh, crushing ivory burning ivory like Kenya's recent burning of 105 tons and it's their yeah, third burning of ivory or the Denver ivory crush or the upcoming crush or the one that just happened in Vietnam and the ones that are happening in China okay. how the reduction of stockpiles has, right. has, a, has an effect alright now let me just give the counter argument first there are some people, Dr. Dan Stiles is one of them, who argue that crushing and destroying ivory will actually drive the price up because you're reducing the available supply and therefore the price will go up. I think that's completely wrong. And And it also shows in that study I mentioned before where it said most ivory on the markets today is from recent poaching. It stated that it was not from government stockpiles, which they had thought would have been a part of it. The bulk of the ivory, yes, of course, is coming from the wild. But there have been robberies and thefts from stockpiles. I mean, there hasn't been an official sale from a stockpile since 2008. So any ivory that comes from a stockpile today had to have been stolen from that stockpile. 
Okay? Mm-hmm. The reason why I think Dan Stiles is wrong is because the ivory that was destroyed really was never really part of the supply. The countries that destroyed it had no intention of selling it. When The United, the United States, in no way, was the United States going to release the ivory in its stockpile to the international market. It just wasn't going to happen. So whether it was sitting in a stockpile or being destroyed, it wasn't part of the supply. It didn't affect price, I don't think. And I don't think it was proportionately that much anyway. The, the, the thing is that there are reasons for destroying the stockpile. The reasons against it that you hear from Southern Africa is why destroy something that's so valuable and could benefit people by earning money, etc. And that's sort of precisely the argument why you do want to destroy it because... Right. What you want to do is rob it of value. You want to say, no, this is not a commodity, a high-priced commodity. You want to drive the price down, drive demand down. So the message is not to poachers. Poachers, I don't think, care. The message is to buyers. The message is to say, here's another example of a country that is saying, we don't want to be part of this business. It would be like destroying a, 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 seized, a seized shipment of cocaine, uh, you know, burning it or something. It's to send a message. Now, the other side of it is, is that to maintain an ivory stockpile is, is not cheap, um, particularly in, in uh, African countries. Um, ivory has to be climate controlled. You can't just keep it lying around. It deteriorates. It dries. It cracks. It discolors. So if you want to keep ivory in sort of usable form for, for market purposes, you need a climate controlled uh, warehouse. Then you need round the clock security. I mean, uh, people who uh, are involved in, in protecting the national stockpiles of ivory are people at risk. Uh, so once again, you're highlighting that, you know, reducing well, uh, the demand me, is important. Well, it's me, expensive to keep ivory hanging around. And, and that it, perhaps and it's taking more money to do security around stockpiled ivory and a trade in ivory where that money could actually be used better. Well, let me let me give you an example. I was told very recently uh, after the, the, the meeting that the person in charge of the guarding the keys to the ivory stockpile in Kenya has been kidnapped on more than one occasion. That literally these, these, these people are under guard because people want those keys. It is dangerous to keep an ivory stockpile. It threatens people's lives. It is not a, a resource. It's a cost. It's, it's an obligation to keep this stuff around. Is, is costing you money, is, is threatening people, and is, is creating all sorts of problems for you. Better to be rid of it. And uh, so I, I think that those countries, I mean, you could ask the individual countries why they chose to, to destroy uh, their ivory rhino horn, but it's actually probably beneficial to them economically. Well, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense when we look at it from this angle. So right now, uh, we need to step away for a short break. So stick with us. Uh, We're going to come back and we're going to talk about what CITES has for us in the future and what we can do. So we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. 
Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back, Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and a riveting conversation with my guest, Dr. Ronald Orenstein. So we've been talking for uh, this program and last week. Please do go back and listen to the first part of this episode because it's important to understanding of what we're talking about today and how we got here. If you just stepped in right now, you might not fully understand the point of where we're headed to and that we're wrapping up uh, today, at least for, for now. So... We were talking about ivory bands and how they do work and why they do work and what's going on in the current poaching crisis. Please look into Dr. Uh, Ornstein's book, Ivory, Rhino, and Blood, Behind the Elephant and Rhinoceros Poaching Crisis, because a lot of this information is covered in that book. What has changed is what's happened in the past few years with the criminal cartels and the ivory, and we're going to get into that. So welcome back, Ron. It's great to continue this conversation. So moving forward... uh, in terms of the the ivory bans and the biggest argument against CITES is trade being forced and then we need stricter domestic policies and everything that did come out of COP17 that is positive, which we talked about between this episode and last week's ep- well, ep- episode. I, I think people have to understand. First of all, nobody's forcing trade on anybody. You're not required to trade. But uh, the, the there are a number of countries that don't like so what CITES does because they be, they're being prevented from trade. And Zimbabwe, which wants to trade in ivory, has actually had questions asked in Parliament about the possibility of withdrawing from the treaty altogether. But if they did that, 
they would lose a lot of their right to export hunting trophies and other things. And so I, I very much doubt that they will, will take that seriously and do right. it. Right. And that, that's, that's an important point to remind our listeners, which we did cover last week in the first episode of this. All these mechanisms in place and why CITES is important, why it does work, because there is a lot of money involved I, and what's important about the permitting process. So we did get into that well, last I, week. So. I'd like to expand on that a bit if I could. Please do. Um, People who have concerns about CITES on, on the conservation side or the preservation side have to distinguish between an individual result that they don't like, and I can share with them, like the, the, re- the decision about canned lion hunting, which I think was a very bad decision, and the entire process. I mean, this is, a, a in effect, a sort of international legislative uh, body when they have these CITES meetings, and they're going to be... Th- this past meeting, COP17, had more issues in front of it than any other meeting in the history of CITES. There were, um, there were uh, oh, it's 150 agenda items, so of which only one uh, dealt with lion hunting. So you have to look across the board and say, well, yes, we didn't do too well there, but how did we do in other issues? And we did extremely well. And uh, a lot of the decisions that were made are decisions that are really, I think, going to make a big difference for many, many wild species, not just elephants, not just rhinos, worldwide. I'll give you an example of one that I consider extremely important. CITES allows relaxed rules, exemptions to its rules under certain circumstances. And one of them is if you're dealing with an animal that is captive bred, animal bred in captivity, the argument being that if you're selling animals into the trade, for argument's sake, the pet trade or whatever, and they're all bred in captivity, you're not drawing things out of the wild population in quite the same way that you would if you were taking them directly from the wild, and therefore we should relax the rules a little bit for those those animals. And in fact, that may be seen as a way of, shall we say, keeping some people who would cause a lot of problems for you at bay and say, hey, look, we're giving you something. Now, the problem with that is that in a number of countries, uh, there has been very wide-scale laundering of wild-caught animals into what are called phony captive breeding operations. So, for instance, uh, in Indonesia, uh, the uh, emerald tree python is the most heavily traded reptile coming out of Indonesia under the captive breeding exemption. And a study a few years back showed that about 90% of those animals were actually wild-caught snakes that were either put for a couple of days into a cage or never were in a cage at all, and but were just sent out with the permits all stamped captive bred. Now, this is fraud. There's no other word for it. And uh, I've been wanting for some years to see CITES develop a mechanism to address that. Well, at this meeting, they did. We now have a new mechanism which allows us to challenge countries that claim to be exporting large numbers of captive bred animals, often animals that nobody's ever succeeded in breeding at all and using this captive bred exemption to get them in trade and say, you have to prove to us that you're actually breeding these things. And if you aren't, we can uh, give you a number of things that we want you to do to change that, or we can cut your trade off. And and once again, this sort of is the whole thing about the canned lions and, and let's say zoos, captive breeding. There's some zoos that want to do, let's breed elephants in captivity. So... Two very different things, but well, one is also my point here is one is dealing with genetics and bloodlines and ensuring that the species survives genetically and viably versus farmed industry well, well, and not, like chickens. I, I, Ellie, I'm not even talking about that. 
what I'm talking about is not whether captive breeding is a good thing or a bad thing. I'm talking about fake captive breeding. I'm talking right. about what was never captive bred at all. It's a wild animal. Which does apply to lions. Lions are well, taken from the wild. And- no, no, not, not in the same way. We're talking okay. about an animal. You catch the animal in the wild. You take it to somebody and they issue a permit and stamp okay. the captive bred and it goes out with a captive bred. That's not what is happening with lions. The thing is that what we're talking, but this is not, this is where I think you have to get away from thinking about CITES, the most important thing it does is deal with the large charismatic mammals. The chief victims of what I'm talking about are reptiles and amphibians, and we're talking about tens of thousands of animals, okay? Not just a a few trophies here and there. We're talking about many, many, many thousands of animals that are being sent out into the pet, international pet trade, other markets, under these fake captive breeding, uh, exemptions. And the thing is that that is what CITES has now developed a mechanism to challenge these things. Okay. That's something that CITES can do. And that is that is one of its great strengths. And the fact that we've now got this mechanism, we had a mechanism before similar to it called the Significant Trade Review. Very, very important. Every country is required to show that any species that allows into trade, that trade will not harm the wild population. Well, the significant trade review goes back and looks at trade across the board, particularly wild animals, and says, wait a minute, we think you're exporting so many of these things. We can't understand that this could possibly not be helping the population. We're going to require you to provide us additional evidence that you're not either provide us with additional evidence or you're going to have to do a proper population survey. You're going to have to change the law. You may even have to shut down trade for a few years. You've got to get your act together. And otherwise, we are not going to allow you to trade. Now, that is an extremely powerful and important process in CITES. Because listing a species is only the start. If you list a species and then say, oh, it's listed, fine, problem solved, the animal saved, I guarantee nothing will happen. What you've got to do is, okay, say countries, now that we've listed this species, are obliged to do certain things in order that trade does not threaten that species. And if we feel they're not doing them, then we can go back and work with them either cooperatively or if they don't want to cooperate, non-cooperatively, shall we say, to make sure that they do the right thing. Now that, again, it doesn't always work perfectly, but it works well enough in many, many cases that it's made a considerable difference. This is the sort of thing that CITES can do. That this is why never, it, it is not useless and it is not toothless. Far, but the point is, these are things that people don't know about because they're technical, they're complicated, they don't involve species listings, they don't involve elephants or rhinos or, 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 or lions or tigers. But it's not the emotional knee-jerk issue. It's, it's, it's the mechanism itself. It's, it's the point is that CITES does allow the world to turn to certain countries and say, clean up your act. Not maybe as well perfectly, but... To a much greater extent than I think almost any other environmental treaty I can think of does. And if you tried to change CITES, I can tell you what would happen. Changing resolutions, inventing processes like this captive breeding review or the significant trade review, that you can do. But if you wanted to change the text of CITES itself, you have to call a special meeting to amend the treaty. And I guarantee if you did, even if you came forward with an amendment that might be terrific for conservation. Other countries have the right to come forward and put an amendment on the table to weaken it, to pull the teeth of the treaty. And they might carry the day. And amendments have to be ratified by countries around the world. The amendment that allowed the European Union 
to join as a separate party to CITES. This was an amendment that was passed in 1983 and came into force in 2015. That's how long it took to make one change of about five or six words. So people who think that, well, we could go in and we can turn CITES into an animal welfare treaty, we can turn it into a ban on all trade treaty. First of all, the countries wouldn't accept it and it's up to them, not up to us. We haven't got the power. If they don't want to go along with it, they'll either quit or they'll refuse to go along with the amendment. And it also means that the countries that would like to, to pull away, pull the teeth of the treaty and allow, allow trade for whatever reason, they say it benefits poor people, whatever they want to say, a question of whether it does or not is, is an open one, um, they may carry the day and you'll end up with something worse. CITES is a product of a very idealistic time. Back in the early 1970s, after the first Stockholm conference in 1972, when the world was ready to take some big steps for international conservation, that's when you passed the World Heritage Convention and the Ramsar Convention, including CITES. Today, countries are now realizing those decisions to get tough on some kinds of trade cost people a lot of money. I mean, if you're an ivory dealer, you certainly are saying, boy, I wish we'd never put that treaty in place. I mean, that's why they come to meetings to fight you. Um, if you tried to get that through today in, in, in the current climate of let's do everything by consensus and let's talk about sustainable use and all this sort of stuff, you would not end up with anything remotely as tough as CITES is. CITES is not the toughest thing you could possibly have. As an international treaty, given what international treaties can or cannot do, it's pretty darn good, in my opinion. But people who don't think so, I don't think understand what the limitations are and what the risks of trying to change it are. You work within the process. CITES is flexible. You can add mechanisms. Let's say we have this captive breeding business. That's a new thing. It's a new mechanism that the parties invented. They needed the framework of the treaty to invent it, but it's a whole new mechanism which we're now going to try out over the next few years that hopefully will stop some of this fraudulent smuggling of wild animals by claiming they're captive bred, as I say, tens of thousands of animals out into the world. That is how CITES can change within itself, within its 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 own processes, develop powerful mechanisms, go out and make sure they're done. And also, it's not just punitive. It's helping countries. They can provide assistance. Not every country wants to trade in its wildlife. Some countries want help in in how to make sure that their wildlife is protected. CITES can help them with this. This leads us to now. So we had, um, in some people's view, a a not great COP17. But what we've just understood from these two episodes with you is what was accomplished. Very important and critical strides were made. So that leads us to... What let me just now? talk, Ellie. Let me talk about that for a second. Okay. Let's talk. Yes, you got a bad result on lions. No, we didn't put all elephants back on Appendix One, which would never have been accepted, I think, and might have opened us to the danger that the Southern African countries would then be able to take reservations and could trade as much ivory as they liked. I, I was very worried about that. Now, whether, but the point is, we did get. Let's talk about this. We got many, many new species on CITES, many species of reptile. The African gray parrot, one of the most heavily exploited birds in the world, is now on Appendix 1 after years of trying to get it there. Chambered nautiluses. uh, Pangolins. All the pangolins are now on Appendix 1. An important move to stop the most heavily traded wild mammal on the planet are pangolins. And we have now got all pangolins in the world are now on Appendix 1. The chambered nautilus, all the nautiluses of threatened species of, of cephalopod, relative of octopuses, now listed on CITES. 
300 species of rosewood. All the rosewoods in the world are now listed in CITES, which gives us a way to get at one of the most flagrant cases of wildlife smuggling in the world. Remember, plants count in here too. The trade in rosewood, uh, smuggled and stolen rosewood into China where it's valuable for furniture. This is a major, major, major accomplishment. It'll have to be implemented. It'll have to be carried out with other things. CITES hack can work with other organizations. And the that's United an important Nations- point right there. I'm sorry to interrupt. We're running out of time. What happened at CITES this time was the inclusion of more attention to law enforcement. Uh, this is crucial because we are now recognizing how big a part organized crime plays in this. It has been stated that Wildlife crime, including smuggled timber and smuggled fish, is one of the top five money earners for organized crime on the entire planet, along with arms, drugs, human trafficking, and theft of oil and gas. We are talking about a multi-billion dollar industry in the hands of organized crime. And CITES is now working with the United Nations on organized crime. Uh, getting the idea of getting uh, wildlife crime declared a serious crime in the United Nations sense, which allows uh, stronger penalties, uh, tougher law enforcement. We are finally now, CITES is now moving into this arena of global law enforcement and a global pushback against organized crime, which is the chief threat to wildlife in trade today. I mean, leaving aside climate change and things of that sort. For if you're talking about trade in wildlife, your big enemy is organized crime, and CITES is joining that battle now in a way it never did before. And we've just ended this episode, this two-part episode with Ron, on a bang, because this is huge. And it shows how much the world has changed just since the last COP16 and what we can do moving forward. And so it is really critical. And 2016 was an interesting year and a lot of challenges in so many ways and it's providing us a way to move forward and how you my listeners individuals countries nations law enforcement everybody can better focus our efforts and our funding donor funding national funding you name it toward efforts that will combat wildlife crime as ron said one of the largest growing economic goings on today it's huge so now we have a way to move forward so ron unfortunately we are out of time may i just add one brief point if people want to know more go to the website of the species survival network download our CITES Digest, which explains all the issues that was created for the meeting, so it doesn't give the decisions, but uh, all the issues that were discussed at this meeting. If someone really wants to know what's been discussed at past meetings, and if you're a member of an organization that deals with wildlife trade, consider joining the Species Survival Network. We are a global network working on CITES issues. We're always looking for people who want to help us in this fight. Thank you. That's a really important note to end this episode on, and I hope to have you back again and we can discuss more about what you've talked about not only in your book ivory horn in blood behind the elephant and rhinoceros poaching crisis i'm sorry i'll I'll, I'll, I'll come up with a snappier title (laughs) it's it's an important title so unfortunately as i said we're out of time today thank you so much ron i look forward to talking to you more and meanwhile listeners please consider next time you walk out our wild world and the effect we have on it thank you thank you again for joining us this week 
Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.